This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Jessica Walliser is an avid gardener and professional horticulturalist, working in the business of plants and gardening since the tender age of 15. As she has matured as a gardener, so too have her understandings and her passions. She now considers herself a devoted bug lover, as well as a devoted plant lover. Jessica is a former garden podcaster, a co-founder of the online gardening resource Savvy Gardening, and the author of many books reflective of her journey and knowledge, including, most recently, Plant Partners, Science-Based Companion Planting Strategies. I caught up with Jessica a little earlier in the season from her home and garden near Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Welcome, Jessica. Really glad to have you with me today. Thank you so much for inviting me, Jennifer. I'm thrilled to be here. So I gave a basic introduction of who you are in this gardening world, Jessica, but I wonder if you had to distill your long career in horticulture down to a mission statement for what your gardening impulse is about right now, what would that be? Boy, is that a loaded question. (laughs) How much time do we have? Um, I I mean, I suppose if I have to put it in a nutshell, sort of like my personal mission has become um, really to get people to love the insects in their garden as much as they love the plants in their garden. I like that. I like that a lot. Before we get deeper, Take us back just a little bit. Where were you born and raised? And who were the people and places and plants that grew you into a woman for whom you would have such a mission statement? So I grew up um, in eastern Pennsylvania, about an hour and a half north of Philadelphia in a very rural community. We had a lot of um, dairy farms. And um, I, in my little town, We had a parade when I was in seventh grade and we got our first stoplight. It was very exciting. And we also had one garden center slash flower shop in our little town. And from the time I was very little, I used to go with my mom to that flower shop and buy her marigolds and geraniums and petunias that she would plant in in the front of our house every year. And I used to tell her when I was really little that someday I was going to work in that greenhouse. And she, you know, of course, just kind of shrugged it off, knowing that kids change their mind a hundred million times about things like that. (laughs) Right. You know, sure enough, when I turned 15, I went to the high school office and I got my working papers, which you had to do when you were 15 to get a job and went and applied for a job there. And I got a job in the flower shop working there and it was a lovely um, German family that owned the garden center and flower shop and started working in the floral design area, processing flowers, waiting on customers, answering the phone. Um, Eventually I started to learn floral design. So I worked for them all through high school. And then um, I did actually end up making a mistake on something and I kind of got demoted to the greenhouse, which turned out to be like the best thing that ever happened in my whole life. (laughs) 
<laughs> and I'll never forget my first job in the greenhouse was propagating um, a, a houseplant, a Tradescantia houseplant, and taking cuttings of it. And they were teaching me how to do this. And I and I was like, this is never going to grow. These people are crazy. What am I? What? <laughs> and sure enough, you know, a couple months later, there were these lush, beautiful hanging baskets that people were buying to take home. And I just couldn't believe it. And I was just, I mean, I loved gardening before that, but I was absolutely hooked on plants after that. So then ended up going to college for horticulture and the rest is history. Okay. First of all, I really want to know, what did you do so wrong in floral design that they sent you to the greenhouse? Yeah. Okay. Well, the um, somebody had called to place an order for a funeral basket and oh. I wrote down on the order, funeral basket, $35, right? Because this was like in the late 80s. So you could get a funeral basket for $35. So I wrote funeral basket, $35, right? And the designers that were in that day made like a little tabletop arrangement in a basket and oh. sent it to the funeral and the people that placed the order in their head were thinking like one of those big a big giant basket you know that right. you usually see at funerals and so they were very upset with me that I didn't write clear directions for the designer oh. but being like you know a 16 year old if the person calls and says funeral basket I write down funeral basket you know so uh, I think they were just, you know, the the folks in the flower shop were just kind of like, you know what, let's just send her to the greenhouse and, and see how that goes. And uh, and it was great. I mean, I just really found my home there. And I came to love all of them very, very much. I worked there for a long time and they were just very, very good people. Well, and what's great about that story is one, it got you where you really ultimately wanted to be, and the universe knew this before you, but also that um, having been a listener to your podcast and a reader of your uh, garden books and garden columns, you are very good with clear directions. So that was a problem solved right at the age of 15, which not many of us can say, Jessica, right? <laughs> I hadn't thought of it that way, Jennifer, but that, <laughs> that probably was something that got my wheels turning. Okay. How do I clearly explain things to people in a way right. that there's no confusion? <laughs> right. Okay. So I know that people love to say, and the rest is history, but the rest of us don't know this history. So from your college days, take us on the path that leads you to becoming um, someone that is specifically interested, well, not specifically, but in, you know, that one of your passions is the science behind gardening. And two, what we like, tell us about your work as a, a radio host and, and also perhaps as the co-founder of Savvy Gardening before we get into your most recent book and the focus of wildlife, specifically winged creatures coming into our gardens in the form of insects. So I had, uh, after graduation, I had done a, a brief stint working for a landscaping company here in um, Pittsburgh. And also with that, I did an internship at a, a local civic garden center slash botanic garden here. So I had those sort of like short term jobs and positions. Um, and then shortly after that, which was like maybe a year, year and a half time, then I thought, hmm, you know what, all these people are interested in my work with this landscaper in how I'm taking care of their perennial gardens. And I thought I might be better off stepping out on my own and starting my own small company to maintain perennial gardens in and around the Pittsburgh area. So I did that. I um, My dad helped me. He bought me a Subaru that I could fit all the tools in. And my very first year, I took care of about five or six gardens. 
um, again, all, all around Pittsburgh. And that then grew. And 10 years later, I had a crew of eight women working for me. And we tended um, in a year between 35 and 40 different perennial gardens in and around Pittsburgh. I mean, we had postage stamp gardens in the city, all the way up to 80 acre estates, um, you know, in the suburbs of the city. So we I did that for 10 years and then um, and loved it. I did. I loved it. And I loved the crew of women that worked for me. We had a lot of fun while we were out working in those gardens. Uh, and then my husband and I ended up buying an organic market farm. Well, it wasn't organic when we bought it, but we bought like a, a 25 acre market farm in the next county west. So closer to Ohio from where we are now. And we set that up. I sold it some farmers markets. I sold to some local restaurants. We did fruits and veggies and herbs and cut flowers and did that for about five years until I got pregnant with my son. And I had visions of, you know, putting him on my back in a carrier or out in a pack and play <laughs> out in the garden and working with him out in the fields and things like that. And, you know, anybody who's a new mother knows that, you know, that. <laughs> That, God bless you if you can do that. I couldn't. I <laughs> right. It it sounds good, and if you have to do it, I'm I'm sorry because it's it really is, really yeah. hard. And if you don't have to do it, you you yeah. know just so, yeah, how hard it is to try and make that work. Well, okay. Now I want to unpack a couple of things here. So I want to go back to your perennial garden maintenance company and your crew of eight women. And the reason I want to go back to this, Jessica, is that. I think right now we're seeing this fantastic renaissance of people interested in actually learning how to care for gardens as gardeners, uh, transcending this sort of common motif of the mow and blow crew who come in and like get things done in about five minutes with a lot of machinery, but don't really know how to prune, don't really know how to hand weed, don't really know how to feed and water or if something isn't getting the right food and water. And you know, this, like, would you say that was an early, what you were doing was an early iteration of, of almost ecological landscape that we are seeing really kind of start to thrive right now? Um, I would like to think that it was, but I'm mm -hmm. not sure that it was because these, okay. were, these were really highly maintained, highly cultivated gardens. This was before the whole naturalistic planting movement came to be. I mean, we're talking about the early 90s. So I don't even think that was a thing. Um, you know, when I first started as a professional gardener, I was, and I freely admit this in the front uh, of the um, introduction of my book, Attracting Beneficial Bugs to Your Garden. I mean, I freely sprayed. I was a certified pesticide applicator. I sprayed, you know, if, if there was a threat to one of my client's gardens that I thought could reflect poorly on me, you better believe I re reached for the malathion. So it really took me, and actually what it took was an employee who started working for me who was very, very interested in starting her own CSA, getting organic certified on her own um, piece of land that she grew on, 
and spending all those hours, you know, eight, 10 hours a day talking with her as we worked in gardens. I mean, she really, really enlightened me and some of the research out there and the dangers, um, you know, of different pesticides and chemical products and exposure to dioxins and all this kind of stuff. And it really, really got my wheels turning. And she really was the genesis. She's still a good friend of mine, um, of me starting to think about a garden as an ecosystem and starting to think that those aphids on that honeysuckle vine that I was spraying, that they were really food for somebody else. She was the reason that I started to really shift and change the way that I garden. So over those course of the 10 years of owning that company, I went from being a very chemical dependent certified pesticide applicator all the way to about year seven, year eight, where I said to myself and my clients, I'm not using any of this stuff anymore. I'm done. Um, I will continue to take care of your gardens, but I'm no longer going to be reaching for those products to control these pests. And all but one of the gardens that I took care of were like, great, let's do it. Awesome. And that is such a great story, I think, for people to hear, Jessica, because I think, you know, so many of us, I'm 55, I think, so many of us age maybe 45 and older, like this was the gardening culture we were raised in. And so to be able to recognize it for what it was, start questioning it and changing our behavior, that is where we start to move the needle on the whole industry, which is what you clearly went on to laser focus on, I think is the right term for that. So then let's get to your, your organic CSA and market farm with your husband, food and vegetables now, and you have your first son. Go on with your story. And and what kinds of things are you growing on this farm? Uh, and then tell us about what happens after you have your first child. So we sold at two different farmer's markets um, in the county where we lived, which again was one county west of Pittsburgh, and um, to some small restaurants and some cut flower customers and things. We never really had a CSA. We just sold at the farmer's mm. markets. Um, that was, again, before CSAs really became a thing here in Western Pennsylvania. There were a few, but they were just really pretty big farms, and we weren't a big farm. We only grew on, I'm going to say it was probably about three of our acres. The rest of mm -hmm. it was woods and the we had a nice big um, hay field out in the back. So we just, we grew everything. I mean, I, my favorite was growing all the heirloom tomatoes, especially different cherry tomato blends. I grew a whole bunch of different kinds of lettuces and herbs. We had a small orchard that was already mature by the time we moved in. Um, we had chickens, so we sold some eggs at the farmer's market as well. So the, the far, we had the farm for about five years. And then, um, and then again, my, my son arrived. I have pictures of me like big and pregnant working at the farmer's market stand, um, you know, with my vegetable shirt on. <laughs> and, um, and he was born and then the, he was born in October. And so the year after that, the farm sat fallow and I planted a cover crop because I just knew I couldn't do it. I wasn't in the right mommy place to do that. And my husband has a, had a full-time job, you know, that was an hour and a half commute to and from work every day. So um, we just knew it wasn't in the cards for us that year. And I sort of thought, well, maybe when he gets older, I'll get back into it. And then we decided that we probably ought to sell the farm while it was still in great shape. And we knew we wanted to move into a different school district 
for my son as well. So we went from 20, almost 25 acres to the two acre property that we have now. So still pl plenty of room to grow, um, but also in the meantime in there, when my son was a baby, I wrote my first book. I started doing the radio show when I was pregnant with him. I started writing mm. two weekly columns for the newspaper here when he was an infant. So all these other things started to happen in my life that really were pulling me away from the farm. I knew that wasn't the right place for me to be anymore. Um, and that made it easier for us to make that transition to where we live now. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that again is another level of observation and self-awareness that is really important if we're going to have endurance in this field and with our passion, don't you? It, it, it really is. And I look back now and I think, oh, gosh, I had to be pried away from that farm because I really did. I loved it there. I loved growing for farmer's market. It was, it was like, you know, I was clinging on with my fingernails, but looking back now, I think, you know, there was no better move that we could have made for ourselves as a family. Um, and, you know, we all know as moms, right, that sometimes, you know, you might, you might think of it as a sacrifice, but it, it really isn't. It really is also better for you in the long run. And that was definitely the case for me. And it really did completely change the direction of my career uh, into just something that's wonderful that I'm so grateful for every day and that I just absolutely love. And I think it is such a perfect analogy that there are seasons in the garden, there are seasons on the planet, there are seasons in our life for when different things fit us most appropriately. And this passion for the garden and for plants and for working in harmony, like it has so like many faces that it can take on that there is plenty of room for those seasons. And I think that's really important for uh, people in different stages to be able to hear and take hope in. And you shouldn't be afraid of the change of seasons either. Like I know I'm kind of, I'm, I mean, I like to consider myself a pretty brave person. I mean, I step into <laughs> things with, you can ask my husband with very little hesitation, you know, sometimes to my own detriment, but <laughs> that's another conversation. But, um, you know, I, I look at them as a chance to try something new. And just by the nature of my personality, as long as it's connected with nature and plants, I'm always up for trying something new. And so it's just sort of, for me, it was a lesson in, you know what, don't be afraid to, to take on things that might seem new and different. Yeah. So you write your first book when you are pregnant with your first child, your son. Um, tell us what year that was and what that book was. And then give us a little rundown on each of your books up until uh, Plant Partners, your newest. Sure. So that was, um, let's see, 2004 when I wrote my first book, Grow Organic, which was written in conjunction with my radio co-host, whose name is Doug Oster. And um, I actually, after 15 years, just left the radio show a few months ago, but I left it in very good hands with Doug. He's continuing to carry the torch on that. Um, it, I was ready to leave. I was ready to be done with it. So um, again, you know, onwards and upwards to bigger, better things. So that was that book. And then we did a, a gardener's journal on the heels of that one that was also with Doug as sort of like a partner to Grow Organic. Mm -hmm. And um, Grow Organic is no longer uh, being published. But then my third book was Good Bug, Bad Bug, which continues to be the little engine that could. That first came out in 2008, and it came out as a second edition, I believe, in 2013, maybe, 2014. Um, and that's just like 
the that book just amazes me. It continues. It's like a little spiral bound field guide to. Yep, I have it on my shelf right oh, here. Oh, you do. Yep. Oh yeah, that's oh, awesome. Yeah. To the it's got pests and it's got beneficial insects and the pages are glossy and laminated and thick so you can wipe them off. You know, it's meant to be taken right out into, out into the garden with you. And that was the book where I really hardcore dove into learning more about the balance of beneficial insects and pest insects in the garden and what kind of a role the gardener can play in that balance. And then after that was attracting beneficial bugs to your garden. And that one won the American Horticultural Society's Book Award in 2014. So I remember well what done. year that one came out. Yep. Right. Yeah. Yep. And that was where I really, I mean, I, I always knew that I loved research, um, not necessarily doing it, but reading about it. Mm -hmm. But that book, because it was so heavily steeped in research, um, that's where I got a real taste for the enjoyment that I personally take in geeking out over things that I love. <laughs> and there's just so much really cool research out there about how plants interact with insects, how insects interact with each other, and what little role we humans ought to have in all of that and how we insert mm -hmm. ourselves in there when we really don't belong. Jessica Walliser is an organic gardener, horticulturalist, and bug lover based near Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. We'll be right back after a break with more of her passion for partnering with all of the lives of our gardens as both an art and a science. Stay with us. Hey, it's Jennifer. As summer gets into full swing, and that great diversity of bug life that comes with summer does as well, I'd love for us all to keep in mind the joy of Jessica's mission, wanting us to love the insects of our garden as much as we love the plants. That includes the aphids and the mosquitoes and the Japanese beetles, as odd as that might sound. I've been doing some reading around pollination ecology and seed ecology and even around faith and ecology of late for a longer-term project underway. Think Gary Nabhan, Darwin, and Judith Larner. And it's just so clear that while we love the fruits and flowers of summer, they do not come to us in a vacuum. They come to us on the wings of millions of years of co-evolution and resilience and adaptation, by plants, by their pollinating partners, by their seed and seed dispersers, and by their sheer grit and luck. Gary Nabhan and Steve Buckman, in their co-authored work from 1998, entitled The Forgotten Pollinators, notes that if a plant is listed as rare and endangered, let alone extinct, the chances are that the creatures who live off of that plant, including pollinators and seed dispersers, should also perhaps be protected and cared for as endangered as well. And we, humans, could very well be those very creatures. So as you eat your peach, or the likes of the apricot galette I made last night, mmm, 
keep this faith close. We are directly attached to the fate of the lives around ours, in body and in soul. May our actions align with this deep understanding. We're back now to our conversation with Jessica Walliser, Pennsylvania-based organic gardener and writer, focusing on how to grow our gardens even better. As we come back, Jessica shares more about her newest book, which moves us, with her, into ever greater systems thinking in how we tend our edible gardens. It's an immediate way, and it's also now more than ever a necessary way. I mean, you think about how we grew vegetable gardens for lo these many years where our plants are soldiers in a row. They are lined up tight one next to the other with enough space in between for human to fit through. They are crop after crop with very little diversity or mixture Mm. amongst those rows. And we know now how diversity plays into, you know, thanks to Dr. Tallamy and lots of other people who write about this, how it plays into our forests and into our perennial gardens and into our shrub beds and our foundation plantings. I think that it has such an important role to play when, you know, the opportunity is there to really start to look at our gardens in terms of growing them better and growing better because we are partnering certain plants together, not just for our own benefits, but for the benefits of everybody else who lives there. Yeah. Yeah. And I think also it's landed in this moment when, you know, I think many people who, you know, met lockdown and and met some of the upheaval of 2020 by saying, okay, I'm going to start a garden this year. And they start, I think, with the vegetable garden. And so this is meeting a whole new generation of gardeners right when they need it the most. So tell us a little bit about the genesis of this program. I mean, you've written two other books specifically about insects in the garden and how to identify them and how to bring them the the best of the ones in. How did this particular project come to be? Well, you know, it started where a lot of people start with companion planting. Um, And that is in terms of its ability to perhaps protect your garden from pest damage. That's really where in most people's minds, when they hear about companion planting, they automatically think of it in terms of, okay, what combination can I plant to help deter the pests, right? Yeah. Now, wait, I'm going to have you stop right there and describe for listeners who might not be familiar with that term, what is the most traditional definition of companion planting, Jessica? Oh, I'm glad you pushed the rewind button because that's an important (laughs) point to make. Yeah is a very important point to make. So traditionally, companion planting is partnering one plant with another plant to get a specific benefit out of it. And typically that benefit has for many years been focused on pest control, right? Um, And it's always sort of like plant A with plant B and you get this result, this pest will not show up or whatever. But the truth is that that is just one teeny tiny part of companion planting in a vegetable garden that can lead to success in one teeny tiny way. And so one of the things I think I want people to realize about plant partners is that it is 
definitely taking a look at plant A and plant B, but it's, it's more than that. It's about creating and encouraging diversity in the garden. And when you have, there's this, you know, the scientific phrase that's often used, it's diversity equals stability, right? Mm -hmm. So the more diverse environment that you have, the more stable that environment is. And it's, definitely clear in the vegetable garden. The more diversity you have in terms of the plants and the animals and the microbes and every other creature that lives in that space, the more diversity you have, the more stability you have. So that means the fewer weeds you have, the fewer um, pest outbreaks that you have, um, the greater diversity of insects and wildlife that you have that can keep the garden in a very stable place and the, the fewer diseases that you have, right? So instead of looking at companion planting in terms of put plant A with plant B, get this result. Instead, what I do in the book is I speak first to the, the perks of encouraging this diversity and why it is so important and what the research is that's showing us all of this. And then I jump into seven chapters, each of which are aimed at a very clear possible benefit of partnering certain plants together. So pest management is one of those seven, right? Mm -hmm. But there, there yep. are six others in there that are equally as important, but often misunderstood or misapplied in the garden. Yeah. Yeah. So, and so all told, all together, this new way of thinking is the modern companion planting you refer to. Bingo. It's a yeah. reboot. Yeah. It's a reboot because also that old school kind of traditional companion planting, I call it old school, right? It's it's conjecture based. It's folklore based. There's there's little to no science telling you out there that you need to plant your marigolds with your tomatoes and then you won't have X bug or Y bug show up to your garden. Like these are all over the internet, these folklore based companion plants. And yet I knew in my mind that plants interact with each other. We know that, right? There's tons of research that that's oh, yeah. different ways that plants interact. So I thought, well, there has to be research out there on companion planting. It has to exist. So what is it? And what, what I found was that the scientists don't like the word companion planting. They must not. I mean, I'm making that assumption because you very seldom see it in scientific literature. What you see instead are phrases like interplanting, intercropping, creating a polyculture, and the use of the word biodiversity and diversity, right? Those are the words they use because companion planting has such a bad reputation of being folklore-based. I wanna reclaim the term companion planting from a science-based standpoint. So it is interplanting, it's intercropping, it's creating a polyculture, it's all of those things. They are all companion planting and companion planting is all of them. So let's take back the use of that word and instead of it being folklore, let's have it be science-based because the science is there for it. Yeah. And I, I will just say, uh, in defense of the word folklore, which I, I, I also feel pretty strongly about, is that there may not be a lot of recorded data, but folklore became folklore much like you know, a cliche became a cliche because there is truth in it. Now, exactly how much effective truth is there and in what conditions and with what combinations, that is what data helps us to um, establish. And so I do feel strongly that uh, it's important that we recognize that folklore and traditional ecological knowledge and anecdotal experiential knowledge is absolutely valid. 
as long as you have enough of it together, establishing data that supports it. And and therein lies the beauty of marrying traditional Western academic science, you know, quote, science with traditional ecological knowledge and your own observations of your garden, your plants, your climate, and what is happening. And, and so, that's what makes science fun, isn't it? That, yeah, for me, it, it it's should about be. Yep. the experimentation. And so it, you shouldn't be afraid to do those kinds of experiments in your right. own garden because everybody's going to have different results. There are lots of factors that play into it. So you can take a folklore-based companion plant that doesn't have science backed up, but you can have very good success with it. The potential for success is always there. But as a scientist, for me writing about plant partners and companion planting, I wanted to make sure that every partnership that I recommended had that good science behind it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That, that data and that backup. So, okay. So we, we get into these seven chapters. If you can, in, in, you know, sort of as pithy a way as possible, give us a breakdown of what each of these chapters is trying to teach us. Uh, not every detail, but just the thesis of each one of these chapters, Jessica. Sure. So the soil preparation and conditioning chapter really talks about which kind of partner plants you can employ to help improve your soil. So many gardeners know uh, cover crops and green manures, right? Um, maybe some vegetable gardeners have experience with them. If you've have, had a negative experience using a cover crop, um, I'm, I'm not going to, I don't mean to sound accusatory, but you've probably done it wrong uh, because cover cropping is actually quite an art. It really is. And it's knowing which crops to choose to plant in which parts of the gardens, how to, to um, quote unquote, tend them appropriately so that they <laughs> don't become weedy and take over. Right. Um, but it's also things like, um, you know, using living rototillers, which are crops with their deep tap roots that open up channels within the soil. And that's especially important for people like me who are no dig gardeners. Yep. So that chapter speaks to all of those different plant partnerships that you can use to help uh, benefit your soil. There's a chapter on weed management, and, as you mentioned, and that one really looks at things like um, living mulches. Like what companion plants can we choose to plant as a living mulch around our harvestable crop that will help suppress the weeds? It also looks at allelopathy, which is the ability in the, um, of certain plants to produce chemicals that inhibit the growth of other plants nearby. Right. And there are many cover crops that have allelopathic uh, chemical properties. Give us an example of that and give us an example of living mulches too, Jessica. Sure. So um, probably the most common and most studied uh, cover crop for allelopathic uh, compounds is rye, ryegrass. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, that's used it, on a farm level a lot. Um, a lot of home gardeners use it as well. It's not my favorite cover crop because if you don't treat it properly, it can become problematic. Mm -hmm. um, but that's one I really lo uh, love to recommend for its uh, allelopathic um, properties. There's also even something as simple as a cucumber. Cucumbers produce many allelopathic compounds that can restrict the growth of other crops. Mm. So we can grow that as sort of a living mulch underneath taller crops like okra or tomatoes. Mm 
it will help shade out the weeds, but it will also produce those compounds that will uh, help suppress certain weed seeds from germinating as well. So yeah, and living mulches can be something like, there's a whole bunch of different great clovers, crimson clover, subterranean clover, um, white clover. So there's a whole chapter in the book about it, but if right. you're growing a perennial crop like blueberries or currants or something like that, then you would choose a perennial living mulch so that you don't have to you know disturb it every year if you're growing annual crops and you want to use an annual living mulch like maybe it might be um, a sweet alyssum or crimson clover that's going to be winter killed or something like that this is cultivating place jessica walliser is an organic gardener horticulturalist and bug lover based near pittsburgh pennsylvania we'll be right back after a break with more of her passion for partnering with all the lives of our gardens as both an art and a science stay with us So, thinking out loud, as of this last week, John has now documented all five species of bumblebees who have made their lives in his garden this past few years as present again this year. All five. And for most of them, he can tell which one they are by the sound of their buzz. Isn't that great? They seemed a little slow to get going this year, and he was very worried perhaps because we're so very dry here in California this year. But all five species are here, and we're both thrilled. The evening crickets are also serenading us each evening now, and from all reports, the cicadas of summer, both the annual and the repeating, are faring pretty well on the eastern side of the continent, their songs alternately thrumming and screeching, so we're told. For all we speak of the tastes and scents and colors of summer, the sounds of each season are key cues for our lives here on the planet also, aren't they? It was the point of the fear and the tragedy implicit in Rachel Carson's title for her most famous work, Silent Spring. What would a silent spring or a silent summer mean to us? And I wonder, what insect songs speak of summer to you most poignantly? I hope you'll share them with me. The source of these sounds, the sounds themselves, and the memory held in them both for you as a person cultivating your place where you are. And I'd love to share your thoughts in our Cultivating Place community, what I see as a sort of journal of what it means to be a gardener in these times in our places. So if you have a sound or a source of a sound to share with me as being perfectly summer, send me an email cultivatingplace at gmail.com or share your sounds, sources, and stories behind them in the comments with me on Instagram at cultivating underscore place. I'd love to meet you there in your sounds of summer and to create a kind of mm, symphony written out of all of our sounds put together. Send me an email cultivatingplace at gmail.com 
or share your sounds, sources, and stories behind these sounds in the comments with me on Instagram. You can find me at cultivating underscore place. I'll hear you there. We're back now to our conversation with Jessica Walliser, Pennsylvania-based organic gardener and writer, focusing on how to grow our gardens ever better. As we come back, Jessica shares how in Plant Partners, her newest book, she breaks her own rule as to art and science when it comes to the chapter on structure. But does she really break her rule? Yeah, I break my own rule on this one, right? So in the beginning, <laughs> in the beginning of the book and throughout this conversation, I promise that all of the partnerships that I recommend throughout the book are based on science. So there's at least some studies that tell us that these are going to be successful plant partnerships. Well, this chapter, I break that rule. I make it really clear in the book that this is the one chapter in the book that's based largely on aesthetics. So you, this is using one plant to support structurally support the growth of another plant. So like in the three sisters garden where you grow the corn and then you have the pole beans twining up the corn plant. So that's used as a living support. So, but I have lots of other combos in that chapter of a tall plant partnered with a vining crop that um, you know will then provide it structure and support. So it's an aesthetic thing. It also does give you more room for yields because you're growing in vertical then and not just you know, on a single plane. So it does that as well. So it's interesting because you say this is just for aesthetics, but when I was reading this, I had, you know, sort of flashes of even just the, um, Three Sisters is a great example that the the trellising up and the twining up is lovely. It does make use of vertical space, so it's very efficient. Uh, but it also does help with, at least it has in my experience, with aeration and ventilation yep. around plants, as well as taking much greater advantage of available sun. And so it helps in my garden with things like powdery mildew and white fly, because if it's, as long as it's not too dense, it, it adds this air quality that otherwise it's, everything's just all down on the ground. And yeah. so I was wondering about the science of that. Yeah, so there is some anecdotal evidence about um, growing vertically actually helping to limit certain pests as well. So like, um, you know, Mexican bean beetles, right? If you grow your bean beetles or your cucumbers upward, you know, people will say that you're not going to get as many cucumber beetles on it. I actually couldn't find any research that actually looked at that. Ah. either in a successful way or an unsuccessful way. So I don't know that many studies have been done on that. Anecdotally, yeah, I would say it probably does. Can I say that there's science behind that? Not that I could find. Okay, so I hope all students uh, and or researchers in the audience right now had their ears just kind of go, ooh, what? And say, <laughs> here's a good research study for my PhD or thesis or whatever. Okay, so um, good. Now on to uh, the next one. I think this is so fun. Yeah, so this is pest management. So again, this is the main reason why people come to companion planting is because they want to find a eco-friendly way to help control and manage pests in the garden. So there, you know, a lot of times many of the sort of traditional companion plant partnerships are they're positioned from the terms of this plant has a fragrance to it or an odor to it. And because of that, it will scare the pests away 
right? So they don't, the pests don't like the smell of this plant. So therefore they won't come and feed on your plants. But actually what the evidence is pointing to is the fact not that the smell of the companion plant deters the pest, but that the smell of the plant masks the smell of the host plant. And that keeps the pest from being able to locate its host plant. So let's say your combination that you're looking at is dill and a coal crop like broccoli. So you might say, okay, well, it's the smell of the dill. They don't like the smell of the dill, but that's not it at all. They love the smell of the cabbage, but they can't smell the cabbage so much because the smell of the dill is interfering with that <laughs> in the receptors on their antenna. So, you know, can we say that this is an absolute scientific proven fact right now? No, but there's lots of research that's pointing to that being the more probable way that we are preventing pests from honing in on their host plants. So the pest management can come from several different ways. It can come from, um, you know, in, in impeding the pests like that by sort of blocking their um, receptors of that volatile chemical, that, that odor that they pick up on to locate their plants. It can also be luring the pests away. So employing something like a trap crop, which is basically like a sacrificial crop that you plant that the bugs like more. So they're gonna go over there <laughs> instead of you know coming to my plant. So the one I always use in my garden is I always interplant my radishes with my tomato seedlings because of the flea beetles. The flea beetles much prefer radish, which are usually planted a few weeks ahead of the tomato transplants. So they're always busy on the radishes and they leave my tomato transplants alone if I plant them right next to each other. So that's that trap cropping is a good way. We can also disrupt egg laying behaviors. So we do that in a mixed environment and because the the theory is, it's called the inappropriate appropriate landing theory. And the theory is that we know that bugs have receptors on their feet, right? They taste, quote unquote, taste the leaves of a plant when they land on it, especially pests that lay eggs on a particular plant. So mm -hmm. we'll use the imported cabbage worm as an example. That little white butterfly that flies around your garden, it needs to land on its host plant and pick up on the receptors on its feet, a certain number of cues in order to trigger the egg laying behavior. So it has to land on that cabbage plant. So let's say three to five times. There's not a definite number, but I'm just using that as an example. Three to five times before the egg laying behavior is triggered. If you have all your cabbages in a row or in a block and all you have are cabbages, every time that cabbage butterfly lands on the, a plant, it's going to be a cabbage plant. And that egg laying behavior is triggered sooner. If you grow your cabbage mixed with a whole bunch of other plants in a very diverse vegetable garden environment, it's going to land on a cabbage, then it's going to land on a dill, then it's going to land on a basil, then it'll land on a zinnia or a marigold, right? So it doesn't get the ordered numbered of times that it needs to get in order to trigger that egg laying behavior. And so that can result in fewer pests. Okay. So I love this chapter and I love this description you just gave of it because it is all about systems thinking and it is all about analysis and evaluation and troubleshooting and proactivity uh, in order to not reach for a chemical. And, you know, this chapter is chapter five and then chapter eight is pollination and it's your final chapter. Both of them are talking about insects, uh, insects, Primarily, I mean, there are some pollinating birds, but and and mammals, but it, for the most part, we're talking about insects. And so, 
part of me yearns for a day when we move past a language in which any insect is is just automatically labeled a pest. Now, they might be a pest on our cabbage, but that insect, as you noted earlier with, you know, your your revelation that the aphids are actually food for somebody. The the worms are food for somebody. And um and and I and I wonder where you fall on on this because I think it's when we get into this pest mindset that we we then do reach for um, something that hurts all insects. And the thinking in this chapter just gets us so far beyond that. And I am just thrilled with that. It's true. It's true. And it's, again, it's this my mission, right? If I want you to love the bugs just as much as you love the plants in your garden, because when you really start to dive into the amazing roles that insects play in the life of the plants in your garden, in their own lives, in our lives, it's just absolutely breathtaking. And of course, you know, then there's a whole other realm of insects for biological control, um, which is, you know, a whole other chapter in the right. book as well. So right. it's it's about appreciating their role. So And so part of that appreciation doesn't come just from appreciating the quote unquote good bugs. It also comes from the need to appreciate the quote unquote bad bugs, right? Because they, they have such a tremendous ecosystem service. I mean, they're prey. And if you know anything about, you know, the animal world, I mean, prey is the foundation of the entire, you know, food chain, right? So without aphids, there's no food, there's no prey for anybody else higher up on the food chain, including us. So stop looking at them as being these like, absolute wicked organisms that are there just to piss you off because the truth is you are the they you're not even on their radar no they don't care about you they're just trying to live right in their system right exactly now okay so now we do have a caveat that we have to talk about with this right yes it's a really important one Yes, because there's an awful lot of pests that are out in our gardens that don't belong there because they've been introduced from halfway around the world and they come here and they have no natural predators whatsoever. And so that's when their population gets into these tremendous boom cycles where it, it then becomes very hard for us to manage them because they do not have a natural system of checks and balances. So those guys, I feel it's a little easier to be pissed off at them, right? <laughs> because they didn't evolve here. And it's true. I mean, like the emerald ash borer is, is such a great example. I mean, there are thousands of others, but, and, and this is one of those places where I would, you know, say to people, get yourself a good book on bugs like Jessica's, like going to your local extension office and identifying what you have. The problem, again, with labeling these insects that have no natural controls and are here not through their own coevolution with our places and our plants, but through human um, movement of them, inadvertent often, sometimes on purpose. But in trying to control them, again, we are often hurting the insect kingdom. So it is it is a complex issue that we have to uh, enter into in nuanced and very careful ways. We have to be thoughtful gardeners. Yeah. It is essential that we are thoughtful gardeners because no matter how much you hate that Japanese beetle, any action you take against it is going to influence, you know, it's the butterfly effect, right? It's going to influence everything else that happens in the garden. And so to just walk in and 
spray or whatever without very careful thought. Um, you know, I, I love to tell when I when I give my um, talk to garden groups and things about my book, Attracting Beneficial Bugs to Your Garden, I always talk about how one of my favorite days of the year is when the Japanese beetles pupate and they begin to emerge from the lawn as adults. And uh, I love that. And the science of phenology can tell you exactly what day they're going to emerge based on the degree days and all that. I mean, it's a whole cool, really cool science. And I do talk about that in my other book, but I just sit on my back porch with a glass of wine and I watch the Japanese beetles come up out of the lawn. And then I get to watch the robber flies <laughs> who I will occasionally catch a sight of them swooping down and grabbing a Japanese beetle off of my blueberry plants or my rose bushes or midair and sitting down and eating them. And so that's <laughs> the kind of stuff you never get to see if you don't, you know, granted Japanese beetles don't belong here. However, they now have been here long enough that they do have some semblance of natural predatorial controls uh, from generalist predators like, you know, the, those robber flies I just mentioned or, um, you know, praying mantids or some of the more generalist predators will go after them. There's some tachinid flies that uh, lay their eggs on them. So they're there. They're part of the ecosystem of the garden. And I would never go and spray any more malathion on my blueberries or my roses to get rid of them because I am much better off just covering up those plants for a few weeks with floating row cover. Uh, and that's gonna, you know, keep the pests off and keep the Japanese beetles from feeding on them. So, you know, when you, when you look back at your whole career and um, this most recent addition to it, what, what would you say are your greatest joys in this work, Jessica? I mean, I, I think you just mentioned one, which was this kind of immersion and savoring of this whole process uh, that is watching, you know, the robber flies eat the Japanese beetles while you have a glass of wine. But, you know, but there, I, I know there are others. And, and how do you measure success with your mission statement? I think it's probably the greatest joy I get is giving other people aha moments mm. is, is making connections when I'm, you know, doing things like this, right. Talking on a podcast or when I'm going to give a lecture or when I was on the radio and I would explain something to somebody um, and it would really make them rethink the way that they've done something. Um, that to me is pretty special when I can maybe change somebody's mind to maybe think about doing it a little bit differently when they've been doing something a certain way for 40 years mm -hmm. um, uh, to really rethink the way that we're gardening. So I do get, I do get a lot of joy out of that. I love that. I love showing videos, you know, of um, lacewing larva eating aphids or of a parasitic <laughs> wasp laying an egg in a tomato hornworm. And yeah. I'm, I'm showing you this is happening. This is right out there in your garden today happening. If you slow down, sit down and pay attention to things that are smaller than you. I mean, that to me is, is just something that I you know, everybody's so busy, everybody's rushing around all the time. I'm certainly no different, but spending 15 minutes sitting crisscross applesauce on, <laughs> on the, in the dirt, in your garden, and watching what's buzzing around your oregano flowers every day. I mean, that's just a moment of peace that 
you're not going to find anywhere else in your life. And it's going to allow you to have a glimpse of nature that you would never otherwise have. And that's really, really special to me. Thank you very much for being a guest on the program today. This was a great conversation, and um, I really welcome your newest addition to our garden libraries. Thank you so much, Jennifer. It was such a pleasure to join you. Jessica Walliser is an avid gardener and professional horticulturalist. As she has matured as a gardener, so too have her passions, and she now considers herself as much a bug lover as she is a plant lover. Jessica is a former garden podcaster and a co-founder of the online gardening resource known as Savvy Gardening. Jessica's most recent book is Plant Partners, Science-Based Companion Planting Strategies. Join us again next week when we head to the prairies of Iowa in conversation with Kelly Norris, public gardener and ecological gardening advocate, whose freshly out first book, New Naturalism, offers us all an inspiring, ecologically sound vision for the next generation of our home gardens. Join us then. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio and listener-supported over at CultivatingPlace.com, where you can also find each week's podcast and more if you miss the full program when it airs on your radio station. This week's episode notes are under the podcast tab at CultivatingPlace.com and have loads of great images from Jessica's garden and her newest book, Plant Partners. Our producer and engineer is Matt Fiddler. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.